Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Mr. Lester, it is very nice to have you back on the show. Hey, um, man. People, I've been going wild for this series, so I'm excited to extend it with you today. Um, yeah, I, uh, boy, I look forward to these. Um, I look forward to talking about this and, and it, and the, the prospect that we are about to do one, you know, whenever we put one on the schedule, it is, it, it motivates me to get my thoughts together mm-hmm. and, uh, and also gives me the opportunity to really think about feedback. I'd be getting a lot of feedback from people. Um, I want to address a couple things. Um, my, the the last couple of years, specifically in my economics education, has been kind of defined by the one great theme, which is that everyone I admire and look up to has very glaring blind spots. According to me, uh, it's been hard to accept the faults and disagreements I have sometimes really deep disagreements with people who I have a lot to learn from Mm. I'm blocked by a few people on Twitter who I genuinely I regret that I'm blocked by them and that it's it's is that I argued about something totally orthogonal to Bitcoin or economics I, I I argued with them about something else something outside the scope of Bitcoin and economics and I would, uh, I got blocked. And um, I guess it's my way of saying that uh, it's hard to deal with those um, glaring errors in other people and also hard to deal with them in yourself. I, uh, I won't go into the details, but as you know, I like in recounting something that you and I had said, recalled a pretty serious error in something I had said to you and we talked and we're going to correct it before that episode hasn't been released. And it was just me recalling something I had said, and I had said it with so much conviction. I remember Mm. being so astounded at this revelation and then recalling later and being like, wow, that is just completely not true. It's just completely. (laughs) And in fact, I um, just for people listening, Robert sent me the recording because he hadn't released it yet. And in, in the recording, 
uh, Robert, you actually try to correct me. I can hear you sort of <laughs> nudging me towards the correction. And I, and I, I overpowered you with, no, 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 I thought about that. And here's why. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, uh, um, anyways, it, it was humbling. It was humbling. Uh, so that's just like a general statement of the uh, awareness of like how I'm uh, totally new to all of this still. And I feel totally out of my depth. And uh, I know that there are errors I've made, I'm sure, and will make. And then there's another one I want to correct, which is that I had said uh, through like through my own <clears throat> scouring the government websites had come up with this figure that 1.7 trillion matures within a year of U.S. debt, and mm. there's um there's a thread that uh, shows that I'm wrong. Um, the amount of debt. Uh, sorry, let me just call this thread up. Someone else did a much better uh, found better research than me, and um, the amount of debt. Well, in in the next four years, there's nine trillion that gets has to be rolled. Oh, and wow. and I specifically uh, responded to this thread and said, I have found different numbers and he showed me his sources and they were correct. And he also looked at my time frame. I said, well, I was looking specifically at the year from November. Uh, I think it was from November 21. And he's like, yeah, you're e even even by your time frame, Lester, you're you're off. It was it's, it's significantly more. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, somehow I'll make this this thread available. But. I don't know the implications that four trillion matures within the next four years, except for the fact that it'll all have to be be rolled at the new interest rate, unless, of course, it doesn't get rolled due to quantitative tightening. And that brings me to this. This is just I'm really coming to understand a little bit better how the quantitative easing, quantitative tightening mechanism works. And if you read the Fed guy blog, he explains. He explains something that I knew and had heard and had never processed, but that when the way that quantitative tightening works uh, in phase one is that they simply stop purchasing new government securities. So when 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 you know the the Fed is constantly buying government securities, and as those mature as those securities mature, uh, the government pays back the principal and the Fed retires that principal. That money is just gone, but then they purchase the same amount in securities from the open market to replace that value to make sure that the reserves are back out into the ecosystem, back out in the economy. Mm -hmm. But in quantitative tightening, they let the government pay back their reserves, the principal, and then they just retire the money mm. and then they don't purchase the same amount. And I had heard that fact so many times that the Fed just, the money is just gone once they get paid back by the government. And I, I really honestly never understood that. And I kind of, because it was a detail I didn't understand, I didn't believe it. It didn't. It, it didn't seem to me. How does one destroy money? Do you do you actually have to type delete? Do you know? And then it occurred to me um, that when you when you realize that oh, Fed reserves are loaned into existence just like a fractional bank loans money into existence. Right. And so when you when you pay back money to a to a bank, they're just crossing off that debt. So they're not destroying the money. It is that when debt is repaid, then the liability goes to zero. Yeah, it's a contraction in credit, which is a component of the money supply. So if then, if you really understand that, then you really have to understand that Fed reserves are purely uh, invented credit, not only fractionally, but there's 
you can't even say there's not even a fraction. There's zero. It's not even a reserve technically. Not, not even a reserve. Yeah. And, and I, it just hit me. This was just a couple nights ago. I thought there's no money in our system anywhere. Right. Yeah. No gold, no, no Bitcoin. Right. So no anchoring, there's no anchoring to anything outside the system. This is just a self-referential financial system, I guess. And that's in a way that's not an indictment unto itself because Bitcoin is a merely self-referential financial system, but the difference is proof of work yes, and the ability exactly. to make units. That's the anchor outside of itself, right? Bitcoin has an anchor into thermodynamics or energy that makes it non-self-referential. Uh, just going back to the outline. Just a, one other thing. This might be a little bit meta, but this is also the way I think of you know, conceptual systems, even like Austrian economics, for instance. You have to have axiomatic presuppositions, right? There has to be something taken for granted. In the case of Austrian economics, it's something like man must act. That is that conceptual system sort of anchoring into something outside of itself, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, you need these anchor points to something out, outside of itself and to, uh, for monetary systems as well. And so that's why I think gold was like the anchor to energy historically. You break that peg on a fiat system, you have no anchor outside of itself. So the whole thing becomes like this postmodernist self-referential illusion but then with Bitcoin, we have proof of work, which again is this anchor outside of itself that um, keeps it reconciled to reality, I guess is maybe one way to think about it. It's so funny that um, in one of uh, Luke Roman's new newsletters, he talks about Russia trying to bring about the return to a, a gold, gold reserve um, standard. Um, a, uh, um, there's the We'll get into this later, but there's the bullion standard and there's the gold exchange standard. And he's saying that Russia's trying to revive a, a gold exchange standard. It's so funny that I've been studying the gold standard. We've been talking about the gold standard for coming up on a year now. Never, never did I think that I would read that someone is trying to bring it back in, in modern times. And that, that while at the same time, I would think that's a credible assertion, I would also own no gold. Because I still don't have any gold. I just, I just, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if it's, it's owning Bitcoin and owning gold are just really similar. It's, it's almost like a generational thing, like whichever, whichever one you, you choose, they're, they're, they're kind of equal. I think Bitcoin's better. And so I don't own gold, but it's, it, it has given me pause. I've thought so many times over the last few months, I was like, am I, should I just buy gold again? Should I, is, would that be the politically expedient thing to do? Because I mean, the knock on gold for me is that it's it must be centralized, and the centralized nature of gold has led to everything that you and I are talking about. Yeah. But then that need to centralization, that's not a knock against it from the government's point of view. From the government's point of view, that's an advantage. It's ideal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you. It's, um, hmm. I also think a lot about China, right? The largest producer and net importer of gold for the past several years, perhaps up to a decade, if I'm not mistaken. And they've got to just be looking at this, you know, these financial sanctions imposed on Russia and thinking to themselves, hmm, we have all these dollars, we have all this dollar denominated US debt. You know, 
there's a lot of counterparty risk implied in those positions. So maybe they're thinking about divesting at this point when they see that at the flip of a switch, the U.S. will sanction Russia to the tune of six hundred plus billion dollars. And there's um <clears throat> just to go further with this, um, uh, another Luke Groman citation. He had a chart. I think he got it from someone else of the dollar price in gold that gold would have to be at in order to fully back the extant base money in mm -hmm. each economy. Mm -hmm. So for gold to fully back the base money in the Russian economy, gold would have to have a dollar price of 2,600. But for gold to, so say that that happened mm -hmm. and then all countries were in a, a scramble to, there was a short squeeze on gold and all countries were in a scramble to dump dollars to get gold. For gold to um, back the U.S. base money, and there's, of course, different levels of base money, but the, the basis base money, I think, would have to put gold at, I think it was $22,000 an ounce. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you think about the chain of events that somehow Russia, through their stranglehold on commodities, food and, and energy, manages through demanding payment in gold or rubles, to bring about a gold exchange standard and then countries are scrambling for gold and then suddenly the dollar needs to be backed by gold and so gold rockets to $22,000 an ounce or if it's if if they were doing the full the full money supply i think m2 was like something like 50,000 an ounce well wow. if gold does go to 50,000 an ounce then you will have million dollar bitcoin you don't have a universe where gold is 50 you know where a hard money standard is ruling the planet and Bitcoin doesn't match or exceed the U.S. dollar exchange ratio of gold. So even in a even in a world where gold triumphs for me, I just still think Bitcoin's better. Yeah. So what would the so gold's market cap would be somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred trillion dollars if it was all M two? Is that right? Or is it? Do you know? I don't. I don't, oh. but just using what I was just citing, let's see if gold is now, it would have to be, uh, let's say it's 22,000 by its current price, 1800. So it'd have to be 12X and they say it's 10 to 12 trillion. So times 10 trillion. So it'd have to be 122 trillion at least. 120. And that, I think that's about the global M2 number. So that makes sense. Um, yeah, you would expect then Bitcoin to be another large chunk of that. I don't know. 20%. Yeah, when, when, pick, pick a number. Yeah, yeah exactly. Even yeah. if it's a small percentage of it. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, I have this list of sort of apologia to start the episode with. There's another one that I really didn't think. Sorry, one other thing on that just yeah. before we move on. It does seem to me that the, the gold paper markets, as they are being used today, will always be used to overrepresent available supply. So even if Russia makes this move to go back to a gold standard, I feel like there's still going to be just this illusion of additional gold supply in the paper markets than there actually is available for physical delivery, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's, some, there's something... Um... I'll have to find it. There's something that Groban cites in the rewriting of, I think it was Basel three where they're asking um, certain something about parties in the, in the gold, in the, in the gold system, whether it's um, 
systemically important banks, someone has to write down their paper gold holdings. And he was like, why, why is that in there? What's happening there? And in the light of the possibility of an, a dawning gold exchange standard, it would make sense that someone who's in the know would say, hey, you guys should maybe wind down your paper leverage. That only in light of what's happened now does he think maybe that thing which puzzled him at the time makes slightly more sense. Also, he makes the point that um, the ECB has always, the US doesn't mark its gold holdings to market. It's weird. If you look up the value of the US gold holdings, it's valued mm -hmm. at $42 an ounce. I mm -hmm. don't know why there's, there's obviously some sort of statutory reason why that is, why mm -hmm. it's not frozen. Um, but the ECB marks their gold holdings to market. And so if the value of gold suddenly went up in dollars, the ECB would suddenly have a much better uh, reserve ratio, like instantly, it would, it would, it might fix, might fix their debt to GDP problem. Um, so I don't know. There's there's uh, some clear political advantages to the return to a gold standard. It seems almost like science fiction to be talking about it, but yeah, yeah, and it, it won't long run won't fix anything because again, that's how we got to the situation was gold standard. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be a, it would be a it would be a weird time warp step backwards, and I just don't think it would last. <clears throat> um, uh, there's one other thing, and this is a larger thing, and it has to do with at the time we're recording this, Bitcoin's around twenty nine thousand. We've been through this. We're we're in this interregnum between the last inflation and the next inflation, and uh, you and I have talked about this personally. I never prepared for a I never prepared for a long bear market even though I knew that it was a necessary step there's no way to get to the inevitable bitcoin future without going through this valley of depression mm -hmm. it, it you can't have the one without the other if the if the if the fed's going to move on to whatever the next round of quantitative easing is or whatever type of inflation that they invent they can't do it without being seen as responding to a crisis. And so therefore a crisis has to happen. And I never, in all this time, while I have always acknowledged, it's, it's, it's just like my not fully processing the vacuousness of federal reserves, even though I understood it like on paper, I never quite processed the reality of what this period of what the, the pain of this drawdown, what it's gonna feel like and how long it's gonna last, even though I knew it would happen. And so I feel like it hasn't it hasn't tempered my bullishness, but I wasn't being fully honest about this period and what we're going through now. And that I just feel like was um, a little bit of me having blinders on mm. because I think this this has to happen and it has to go on for a while. Um, and I don't and 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 nothing about what's happening now contradicts or is outside the scope of what I, of, of the narrative that I've been developing in my own mind. It doesn't contradict anything. It just feels different now that it's happening. Yeah. The one thing we've probably talked about this quite a bit too, but the idea of going into um, a higher inflationary environment and ultimately a hyperinflationary environment kind of gives you this I think short-sighted mod mental model that, oh, dollars are just going to keep depreciating and that's just the path it's going to follow in some linear fashion, but it's anything but that. It becomes more 
volatile, the more inflation is being inf inflicted, right? So you're going to get these massive, these inflationary runs like we've had since March 2020. And now I'd say we're going through a deflationary um, drawdown. You know, the dollar is getting much stronger now. And this is just, it's a, the proper way to understand this, in my opinion, is money being the insurance policy against uncertainty. So it's like, as you inject additional fiat currency supply into the system, you're actually creating more uncertainty. So you're creating more of this impetus for individuals, institutions to hold dollars. And you get this kind of dollar hoarding, just like you saw in Weimar, right? And then there would be some, whatever, some wave of inflation. And then it's almost like the psychology flips, as we've talked about. And mm -hmm. then people will try to divest those dollars to get anything that can't be printed. So it's a very non-linear process that we tend to think of linearly. Um, the last episode that's been released is episode eight. And that was, um, we talked for a little bit about um, in that episode about this idea that interest is not the price of money. And um, the, the, where we are in the, in the Palyu story in, is we're, we're, we're at the, we left off at the um, close of World War I and we emerged from World War I into this boom of the 20s. And, but the, the, cent the tools of the central bank, which is basically the interest rate tool, had been broken. And so the heading and the outline here is the broken tools of central banks. And I wanted to go back to the, to the question of interest and this truism that I'm sure you've heard as much as I have that interest is the price of money. And I want to, I want to like break this down again, because I heard back from someone they're like, I didn't really didn't quite get when you brought it up before. And I, and I think I could explain it better. Um, there's so much good literature on interest being the price of money. Um, Perry Merling has a lot of like, I'm, 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 I'm still very new to the, um, to the concept of people writing about what interest is. So this represents like a lot of my own thoughts. Um, and I'll try and I'll try and anchor it in economic literature when I when I have a reference, but 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 I I'm 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 probably going to be remaking some very obvious mistakes that other people have made in the past in my thinking, but I'll talk you through it. And 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 I owe a lot of this thinking again to the sailor model about looking at interest as As, as um, a desire for income. I think it has to do with my point in life that I look at I look at interest as how much income can I purchase in the future, which is really kind of the starting place. If you look at the claim that interest is the price of money, I'll, I'll sort of share my thesis and then I'll go backwards. My thesis is that I think calling interest the price of money is essentially a desire to linguistically and psychologically elevate the concept of interest to like this God level in the economic system. And that by psychologically elevating interest, calling it the price of money that, that makes it sound so important, but it's not. But if you, if you make it sound that important and that you think then furthermore that the central banks have control of the interest rate, AKA the price of money, then it reinforces the concept that they are in control and that that's 
entirely the point of the phrase that the phrase interest is the price of money is inherently a tool of mass psychology mm. not maybe not engineered somewhere in a boardroom but it is an expression of the mass psychology that money has this meta characteristic that's even more important than the money itself which is the price of the money and then the mm. central bank controls that that to me is false that money doesn't have a price Mm-hmm. And that they don't control the price of money and all of their attempts to control the price of money only damage the very thing they're trying to control. So when you say that, when I say that, when I said episode eight, I said that it is interest being bought with the money, not money being rented with the interest. There's a, a couple ways to explain it. And it actually might be helpful First, to clarify what it, what it doesn't mean. So you take interest as the price of money, which is a very simple declarative statement. And it's the intention of the statement is to define interest, again, as this meta characteristic of the system, which is even more important than money. Money is the price of things, but interest is the price of money. Mm-hmm. And then I said in episode eight, money is the price of a contract for interest. But when you say that, no, money is a price of a contract for interest, this isn't an attempt to reverse the definition. It's not like an inversion. It's not like, Oh, some people say that interest is the price of money, but in actuality, money is the price of a contract for interest. It's, I'm not saying that. You don't have to wrap your mind around a brand new paradigm that's the opposite. It's merely stating that, look, there are things for sale in the economy. Motorcycles, computers, labor, contracts for interest, and money purchases all of them. Purchases all of them. And you can buy you have a, a whole list of things you can buy and contracts for interest are just some of the things that you can buy. And that's that's what I mean when I say that interest is not the price of money, it's merely money, which purchases a contrast, contract for interest among other things. And in the Austrian literature, a contract for interest is a future good, whereas money itself or something you can f- consume like food and energy, they are present goods. And so, the concept of time preference is that if you prefer things in the, the, the lower your time preference, you might be purchasing future goods and a contract for interest is just one of those things. And it's not like I don't have sympathy for the classical definition of interest being the price of money, especially when you consider like, let's say you you have $5 and a great idea, and you need $100. And you're like, well, if interest is 5%, then, hey, man, if I, if I, if I, with $5, I can get $100. It seems like the price of that $100 is the $5 that I have. I'm very sympathetic to that idea. If I have this down payment for a home, if I can afford these payments, then I can get the capital up front. I get why it seems that interest is the price, price of money. However, you have to understand that when you are engaging in that transaction, you are actually the supplier or the seller and the bank is the buyer and you are selling a contract to pay them interest and they are purchasing the $5 of interest from you. So they're the buyer in that case. So the buyer, there is a price in there, but just keep in mind that when you're borrowing from a bank, you are a seller of a contract and the bank is a buyer. And so the price of that contract is set not 
necessarily by either party, but the price is set by supply and demand in the market of contracts for interest. That's where the price comes about. It's not controlled by one party or the other. So break it into the simplest classical supply and demand dynamics between buyers and sellers. There's really only four possible combinations. There's low supply meets high demand, low supply meets low demand, high supply meets high demand, high supply meets low demand. Only four possible scenarios. So we'll, let's just go through those really quickly and look at how each one would affect the interest rate. So again, and I'm going to repeat this a lot. If I buy a bond from the government, I'm loaning the government money kind of, but actually I'm, I'm the buyer, I'm the demander, and the government is the seller. They're the supplier. If a bank provides me with a mortgage, they're actually purchasing an asset from me. It's a 30-year contract for interest. They're the buyer and I'm the seller. They're buying so your promise. Right, exactly. So scenario one, low supply meets high demand. Low supply means very few borrowers slash sellers of contracts for money meets high demand, which is many lenders slash buyers of contracts for money. So when low supply meets high demand, the buyers have to compete if there's low supply. So how do buyers compete in a contract for interest market? They have to accept lower payments. That's how they're competitive. I want I want to loan you money. Well, I, I want to loan you. Other person wants to loan me money too. Well, I'm going to shop for the lowest payment. So when the buyers are competing, they drive the interest rate down. That's how buyers compete. So that's low supply meets high demand, low interest rates. Okay, low supply meets low demand. Very few borrowers slash sellers, very few lenders slash buyers. Interest rates are unchanged. There's equilibrium. They may, interest rates may be high, they may be low. There's no way to tell. But the lack of competition from either side means there's no general drift that you can infer in any mm -hmm. direction. Scenario three, high supply meets high demand. So many borrowers, many sellers, again, rates are unchanged. They don't drift necessarily from wherever they happen to be when the market hits that equilibrium point. And then scenario four, high supply meets low demand, many borrowers slash sellers of contracts for interest versus very few lenders slash buyers. So now these sellers must compete. And for sellers to compete, they have to entice buyers with higher interest payments. So again, none of those four scenarios say anything about the scarcity or availability of the money. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how interest rates get set, but none of them imply any characteristic of how cheap, expensive, like none of those lead you to interest as the price of money. We're just describing simple supply and dynam demand dynamics mm -hmm. between buyers and sellers. So just to get back from a first principles perspective, if interest were the price of money, then as the money supply hit infinity, then the price of money should go to zero if interest is the price of money. When a good is in infinite supply, then its price should go to zero. Mm -hmm. But we know that that's not what happens in, a, in, a, in an inflationary environment. We know that the price of money, if, as, as they call it, does not go to zero. So right there, just from that historical record, you should be able to see that interest is not the price of money because an infinite monetary supply does not make money free. 
But why do interest rates rise during an inflation? I mean, it, largely it's like due to policy. You know, central banks mm -hmm. step in, they see inflation, and then they have to retain credibility. So they're like, we're going to mm -hmm. raise rates of 50 basis points, then 100, then 1,000. So uh, that's one reason why rates go up. But but if you just go back to the the, the supply demand dynamics we talked about, if 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 the game theory suggests that your debts will be erased by inflation, then it it could motivate people to borrow money as fast as possible. And that will mean there's a lot of sellers. So now we're in a high supply scenario. So that narrows it of our four possible scenarios, it narrows it down to three or four. Scenario three was no change and scenario four was rising interest rates due to competition among sellers to satisfy few buyers. So what are the buyers doing in inflation? Well, the number of buyers slash lenders is low because they're unwilling to suffer losses in real terms because they know they're going to lend at interest rate X, but then inflation is going to mean that they're going to, that the real rate of inflation is 2X. So they're going to lose money in real terms. So there's very few lenders. So there's low demand. So we're most likely in an, in an inflation we're in scenario four. High supply meets low demand where suppliers of contracts for interest, aka borrows, they have to compete and offer high interest rates. And that's how inflationary conditions create high interest rates. But again, the price of money doesn't come into play anywhere there. And yet we know that in an inflationary environment, money is being printed hand over fist, is plentiful, has zero marginal cost to produce. I don't see how you can contemplate those dynamics and say that interest is the price of money. And you could say, okay, well, now you're talking about a crazy inflationary condition where the money supply is being diluted. Maybe that's just a scenario where all rational systems go out the window and maybe it's it's an exception to the rule. Maybe inflation breaks the normal paradigm and under normal circumstances, maybe interest is the price of money. But I, but I, I want to go further and explain why it's not, but I want to stop there and see if you have any. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd first like to just credit you. I think that's a useful framing when you describe basically the creditors in this mortgage example are banks and they are buyers of promises, which are mortgages, right? The, the mortgage ease promise to pay. I hope I'm saying that right. Mortgagee, mortgageor. Mm -hmm. The individual buying the home, basically. Because that helps me intuit this. Is that you're just following the flow of the money, basically. The banks buying the mortgages are doing that with dollars, right? So they are, they're the buyer, right? They're buying this, this future stream of uh, interest, basically. And <clears throat> so that I just thank you for that. That was that's sort of helps edify that in my mind because it can often get very confusing when you're talking about borrowing. You're not sure who's buying, who's selling. Etc. But that, mm -hmm. if you just follow the flow of money, it, it sort of clarifies it. Um, to speak to the interest rate, you know, I think it's first important to distinguish what I would call the natural interest rate versus the policy interest rate. You know, natural interest rate is actually going to be this price discovered by supply and demand fundamentals, whereas the policy interest rate is the lever central banks use to. Um, change market dynamics to put it lightly and so i coming from the austrian school on this as i understand it the natural interest rate would be the quantification of this quality we call time preference 
time preference being always positive. Everyone always prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction, all things held equal. The only way you can change that preference is if there's some additional future satisfaction to be had, right? And to tie this into, okay, how it's not the price of money, how I would understand it is, well, okay, capital is anything that satisfies human wants, kind of by definition. So I think of the natural interest rate as the rate at which people prefer capital now rather than later, which is to say, if I'm going to loan my capital to you and there's a high interest rate, I, have a, I am more interested in holding on to my capital now. So I'm going to charge you a higher rate to borrow it from me. I right? would, then, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I have one qualifier to that. I, yeah. I would say that the, the, the higher the interest rate, it is not, it does not mean that you as the seller of interest contracts are more interested it means that on a system-wide basis, there are more of you and you have to compete harder to, to, to sell your contract. Now it might, because you, you can't really say that because you paid 10% interest versus 4% interest that you, that doesn't necessarily imply anything about how much you value the money or how, how, how high your time preference is. Your time preference is either positive or negative. And the greater number of well, people- Well, time preference is always positive. That's a key point. Great, All, correct. Always correct. positive. Which is why the interest rate can never naturally be below zero. Exactly. So, the, and, and this was something I'd always, you know, when I had heard this throughout the Austrian literature that interest rate is an expression of time preference, I was, I thought, I thought that, that, oh, so the higher the interest rate, the lower the time preference, there's like a direct, that it's a measurement of your time preference. And I think- I think it's the opposite, actually. <clears throat> the lower the interest rate, the lower the aggregate time preference. Because what that's saying, as again, as I understand it, this is a very complicated area, but there is a lower overall preference to receiving capital now rather than later. And that's reflected in- the price that people will charge Correct. to loan out capital. Correct. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. 
and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I'm trying to just, the for me, it helps to just think about it as capital, right? You got the holder of capital and you have someone that wants to borrow that capital to do something. And this is where it's not money necessarily. This could be a factory, right? I could just own a factory. You want to borrow it from me for a year to do something. That has an interest rate built into that transaction. There's no money involved. It could just be a barter, uh, you know, a credit barter transaction, I guess, if that's a term. But this idea that, again, everyone prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction to some degree. Capital is what brings satisfaction in an economic sense. So the higher the interest rate, the more interested holders of capital are interested in having their capital in their possession now <laughs> rather yes, than later. Right. right. Um, I guess you could flip this to the other side too, to the borrowers and saying, oh, they also are trying to get, they have an increased preference for capital now reflected in that they're trying to, they're willing to pay a higher interest rate to borrow. Maybe that works. I'm not sure. But from just the creditor standpoint, that makes sense to me. And then, the key point there is that applies to any form of capital. It's not just the price of money per se, as I described with this, this factory example. So, and where to tie this back into something you said is doesn't make, why would interest rates rise during an inflation? When, in, again, if it was just the price of money, it should be the price of money as supply increases, the price should be coming down. Well, it's because interest rates are rising during an inflation, I would argue, because you're increasing the uncertainty in the world, in the economic world. As you inflate the currency supply more and more, you know, this is the Austrian business cycle theory. You've got more distorted price signals, more misallocation of capital, more boom and bust. So you're shortening everyone's time horizon. There's more and more uncertainty, which means there'd be more and more hoarding of capital that would be reflected in, that would manifest in an increased natural interest rate. So another way to say that is monetary inflation is increasing everyone's time preference, which is reflected in the, these, this increase in the natural interest rate. Mm -hmm. I think that's also a really good explanation. When I was going through that, the like speculating on what makes interest rates rise aside from policy, getting into the human behavior aspect. I, I, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a guess to me, I'm guessing. And I think your, I think your insight is also really good. Um, uh, we know that interest rates go higher during an inflation. We know that why they go. I think there's a lot of reasons. And I think that's a good one. Um, also, I want to take another run at this. Why? <laughs> this, 
why interest rates are low in a low time preference environment. If you are low time preference, then among the, the world of things you can purchase, the thing you're most interested in is future goods. So that is high competition from purchasers of contracts for interest, AKA lenders. And when buyers compete, the way that they compete is by accepting lower payments from the sellers. So that is why a low time preference leads to a low overall interest rate because more people are, are trying to purchase that future income and it makes that future income smaller because they have to compete for those for that income. You got you got right to where this goes when you start to contemplate what is interest in its rawest form and the concept of a natural rate of interest versus a money rate of interest is was where I went in my thinking and then I found of course that that's where the greats had gone in considering this topic. Interest in its rawest form is just profit. There's, there's, there's no, there's, there, you can't separate the two. Interest is just the level of profit. It's, it's economically, it's the same thing as the level of profit that can be expected from any enterprise. And to me, there's no difference between bank interest and any business profit. Bank interest is actually the profit of the bank business. Now, now the profit of the bank, the bank's interest profit, they can afford from a margin standpoint to go all the way down to the cost of renting the bank and paying the clerical staff like banks can afford extremely low interest because bank overhead mm. is they don't make anything they just make the dollars mm. but of course as a bank you you really can't lower your interest rate lower than your competitor because then you'll write too much you write too many deposits and then you'll be insolvent you kind of have to coordinate your interest. You can compete, but you can't outcompete people too much. But essentially the system, the banking system can go quite low. But again, all they're going low with is how much profit they're willing to take and they want to maximize. Their, they're, they're, they're going to try to maximize profit. But I think that if you get in further into this, the, the relationship to interest and profit, it's actually even clearer why interest is not the price of money. I think if you if you're an entrepreneur, some people say, well, no, interest is the cost of capital. So yeah, it's the cost of money. But I and I'm not saying this is the right way to look at it. I'm just saying it's a it's it's an alternative way to look at it that I think reveals more about the system. That no matter where your profit comes from, if you're an entrepreneur, the the if you abstract it to its simplest form. As an entrepreneur, you are spending capital to purchase income. Even if that capital is your, your labor, manual labor, that's what interest is, again, in its rawest form. So like entrepreneurs, they, have, they might have profits, they might have credit, they might have savings, they might have knowledge accumulated, they might have time to spare and labor. And these are their capital inputs. And so as an entrepreneur, you're thinking, okay, how can I spend all these inputs? How can I spend all this capital and get some profit? And the profit is just the difference between their costs in money terms and the sale price of the thing they make. So you input one amount in the beginning and a product comes out at the other end. And of course, if you can charge more than it costs in money terms, then you have a profit. And whatever that profit is, that's your personal going rate of interest. So essentially an entrepreneur uses their money or their capital 
to put together a structure of contracts for a prospective rate of income or interest. And so whether you're a bank purchasing a contract for interest from a dude or whether you're an entrepreneur buying a factory, the process is the same. You're purchasing a future income stream. And the more competition there is, the smaller the income you have to accept. So money interest is, for some people, part of the entrepreneurial process. So money interest has to always be less than the available entrepreneurial profit. Because entrepreneurial profit has to has to give the entrepreneur a spread over the money rate of interest. Mm -hmm. So, like my example is going. I, I love going back to farm mortgages from the 1850s. <laughs> it's the 1850s. Americans are settling the West, which is at that time Illinois, Nebraska, Kansas, South Dakota. So land was super cheap. You could get land for like a couple dollars an acre. So people flooded in to produce food, and they needed, you know, on average. It says that the settler or the the um, homesteader needed about $1,000 to get a farm up and running. That include the building, the wire, the machines, um, and enough cash to get you through your first year because there's no income in your first year. And so there was all this land. People flooded in. They were entrepreneurs. They had time. That was their capital. They had their labor. And slowly... The, a mortgage market developed and interest rates any in the 1850s started anywhere from 10 to 15%. And if you are expecting a 100% profit, then 10 to 15% interest, you know, the interest rate doesn't matter if you know what your profit is. Like if you know that you're going to get 200% profit, then a 15% interest rate is fine. There's no absolute level of interest rate that is a good or bad interest rate. It depends entirely on the profit you expect right. from what you're doing. So then competition developed to provide these mortgages to these farmers in the West. And that's when interest rates came down to eight, 6%. So it just brings us to the, that, that interest in its simplest form is just whatever profit you happen to be able to get. And, and then there is no standard interest rate because every venture is different. There will be a structure of interest rates in the world available to various entrepreneurs. And there will there should probably be a structure of, of money interest rates based on the risk of the borrower. So I'm saying I'm, I'm setting this all up as an alternative to the hyperinflationary system. Now I'm talking about a real competitive free market system. So in a purely free market system that isn't this edge case of hyperinflation, does this cheap money low interest rate environment, does that come into being on its own? Well, if, if, if low interest rates obtain in a free market environment, it has to mean that profit levels have also gone down across the board. On average, the level of available profit for all entrepreneurial activity has now gotten lower because we know that the money rate of interest has to be less than the level of entrepreneurial profit. So as entrepreneurial profit drops, then, and they require a spread if they're borrowing money, the entrepreneurs do, then the money rate of interest has to go down. And so it's going to make the, there's going to be fewer, fewer suppliers of contracts for interest. And so the buyers, the lenders have to compete. And that drives the, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to, 
entrepreneurs aren't going to pay the higher amount. And so the buyers have to compete and that drives the interest rate down. But this again, doesn't mean that money has gotten cheap. Again, I'm just stripping out this concept of the price of money. Nothing that I've described, all, all the entrepreneurial opportunities in a region or in, a, or in an industry have now been exhausted. Profits are falling. And now set buyers of contracts for interest have to compete harder because there's fewer lenders. That just doesn't mean that money is cheap. Money is money may be worth more or less, but it doesn't mean that interest is the price of money. It just means that the pr available profits have been squeezed out of a sector. And this concept of cheap money, you think about cheap money, I just, I, I think it's entirely a political construct to support the idea that money has a price and that cheap money is an artificially lowered interest rate, lower than the natural rate in order to believe, to achieve a political objective of staying in power. And I guess the semantics matter to me because if money has no price and yet everyone in the economy believes that cheap money is a real thing, cheap money referring to interest rates would have been lowered artificially. To me, it's evidence that there's, there's no longer any organic competition among buyers for interest contracts. So cheap money is a term that only applies when central banks step in as the buyer and it creates a false market for contracts for interest. Mm -hmm. And so in doing so, the Fed introduces gratuitous credit, aka reserves into the economy. And this does have the effect of lowering interest rates, but it has the effect of giving you less income if you're a buyer. So not only does it affect the bank, and it makes the banks have to accept lower income. But it also means, and this gets back to the sailor model of what inflation is, it means that you as someone looking to acquire an income stream in retirement, you also have to accept a lower income. And that's a very pernicious effect, especially when the interest, the artificial lowering of the interest rate creates the inflation, which means that not only do you get less income, from the contract for money which you purchase, but the income you do get is also worth less. So just to put it in context of a, um, like say there, there are a couple sailor articles, he's been saying it all over the place that inflation is measured by how much money you can buy in the future, like how much income you can buy. Mm. And just to like put a simple number uh, example, you buy a hundred year bond, because that exists now, a hundred year bond yields 2%. And you, so you buy it for $100. So that's 100 years of $2 payments plus at the end, you get $100 back of principal. So it's a $300 nominal value. You just made a purchase and essentially it's worth $300 in 100 years. Well, if it's inflation is 3% in that environment, mm -hmm. then the actual yield is at negative, almost one, negative 0.971%, it's almost negative 1%. And so- the $300 that you get in nominal value has depreciated by 3% per year over 100 years. The real purchasing power of that $300 is $15.61 when the bond matures. So bring it back to the point of this whole illustration, saying that interest is the price of money, it like reinforces this idea that the nominal rate of interest is the most important guiding force in the economy. In reality, the rate of inflation is much more important. 
Mm. And low interest rates create inflation, but the nominal rate, AKA the price of money, as people say, is just, it's just meaningless. It's, it's a totally meaningless metric when a currency can be inflated. And the idea that interest is the price of money is a lie that gets you to think you're getting something for cheap when in reality you're getting cheated. And that $100 bond is just an extreme example of it. Sure, that was low interest rate. I got something super cheap. Well, the interest rate, the inflation rate wasn't much higher. It was only 3%, but I lost everything over the course of that purchase or my, you know, my, my family did. And going back to Sailor's framework, he talks about how do you buy $50,000 worth of income for retirement? So August 2007 is the last time the 30-year bond hit 5%. So in 2007, you could get $50,000 retirement income for a million dollars. If you were looking for, and back to what you said, uh, Robert, a little while ago, at the height of uncertainty, when what you want is certainty and you want to buy certainty, let's say hypothetically, it's March 9, 2020, the bottom of the COVID crash, you're about to hit retirement and you're like, I don't know if I can handle this uncertainty. I want to buy a 30-year bond. That day, the 30-year bond opened at 1.03%. And if you wanted $50,000 of income per year, you would have had to spend $4,854,000 for that same $50,000. So we've been in an environment where everyone's like, it's cheap money, low interest rates. Well, if interest is the price of money, how come the same amount of income in that same period of time went from $1 million to 4 million? million eight hundred fifty four thousand this is just why i think this idea of interest as the price of money is so destructive because it inverts the way you think about the what a contract for interest is and what you get from it and how artificially low interest rates ruin the product you're buying yes i mean man, a lot of good points in there i'll try and just add a few things um you know, it's one thing to artificially lower the interest rate, which has all these knock-on effects we've described that are negative. But when you add to that, I think this precedent, this history of bailouts by government, it only worsens the misallocation of capital and the division of labor, because now you have, you know, you're in an artificial, artificially low interest rate environment but the creditors also, I mean, I guess at least implicitly know or expect to be bailed out if things get really systemically bad. So they have an incentive and an inducement to engage in more risky behavior, right? More, which leads to more misallocation of capital and whatnot. And so that's one thought. This other thought that I, I can't seem to escape is all of the, the, these risk-free rates that government bonds pay, like you described the 100-year bond paying 2% for, in, for instance. The question to me from a fundamental viewpoint is where does that yield actually come from when the government inevitably is misallocating the capital? All right, we know that... <laughs> It just can't keep, it's not sustainable, I guess would be the point. The idea of this risk-free rate that you could just park your money with the government and it's somehow perfectly insulated from the market process and there's no risk of default and it just generates a yield, that doesn't map onto economic reality because government is misallocating that capital. And for more on that assumption, you could read Mises, but um, that one just always strikes me as yeah, tr an traditional impossibility. 
the 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 traditional bond people who like still like bonds they'll say look mm -hmm. it's still the only instrument you can own where you're guaranteed repayment at par at the at the maturation when the when the bond matures but like what is par right par isn't even par because no. by the time that bond matures it's par doesn't it's not something that exists which is why i think at the moment people might think stable coins are attractive because stable coins even though that stable coin world is a shit show right now but on theory stable coins promise redemption value at par but again par is actually a ceiling it can never be worth more than a dollar yeah. and dollars cannot be redeemed at par that's what we're learning themselves right. if you look at dollar the commodity value of a dollar a dollar can't be redeemed at par if you think whatever that is so a, a, a monetary instrument like bitcoin that that actually doesn't promise redemption at par to anything outside of the system but has no price ceiling and commodity value is a much more rationally attractive monetary instrument than the bond which promises face value payment yeah and when you you can't just look at the nominal yield or the coupon on the bond obviously you have to factor in inflation because you have to deduct from the nominal yield inflation to get the real yield which to your point earlier inflation is way more important for an economic system than than this stated rate of interest the problem there of course inflation cannot actually be measured no you're totally right you can't it's 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 the same as value value is in the eye of the beholder so to speak your inflation rate every individual market actor is going to have their own inflation coefficient based on what they are doing or aiming to do right sailor talks about this a lot with do you want to buy the house in the hamptons or do you want to live in your parents basement and eat doritos and watch netflix you have two different inflation rates so you have this misallocation of capital. You have this distortion of par. Par is an illusion, right? You're getting paid mm -hmm. back in yep. depreciated dollars and you might not get paid back. I don't like how bond people say that. Well, it's the only instrument you're guaranteed to get paid back. Bullshit. Look at the history of government default. It's, it's huge. Such a, it's, yeah. How can you say that with a straight face? Right. And then even if they don't explicitly default, you are exposed fully to the implicit default of inflation. So like, sure, you might get your nominal value back, but what are those, what, are, what will the purchasing power of those dollars be upon repayment? That's a big question mark you can get no guarantee on. That's the price. If, if anything is the price of money, that is the price of money. And I don't even think that's the price of money, but I think that, I mean, it's like these artificially low interest rates are, they make money worth much less in the long run. And so, if, if interest is much closer to the price of money to me than, I mean, sorry, inflation is much closer to the price of money than interest. And I think, I guess that's why I wanted to spend so much time on this because. Yeah, I don't, I mean, the, the, it's a mysterious notion, almost the price of money, but in my, you know, the way I think about it is, okay, a price is just an exchange ratio. You can price anything in terms of anything else. Just put something in the numerator and something in the denominator. Whatever's in the numerator is the thing you're evaluating. Whatever's in the denominator is the lens through which you are evaluating the thing, right? I can ask you how many apples or how many 
uh, apples does a car cost, for instance, right? You can do this with any two things in the world. Mm -hmm. With money, I guess the most sensible, and again, I'm just, I've never, I haven't thought about this a lot, but if you just denominated money in terms of energy, perhaps, maybe that's a close proxy for actual you know, how many kilowatts does a dollar buy you over time? Something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, I guess, so all of that said, I'll leave it at this and that you, inflation is distorting the coordination between market actors. So this is causing a breakdown in the division of labor, a breakdown in productivity, a breakdown in capital accumulation over time. And so this is the process of de-civilization that inflation causes. Like you're undoing the economic process that, that bootstraps civilization. You're reversing it through monetary debasement. And again, to tie this back to what we were saying earlier about capital, like, okay, if we were, if you get that out of the system, what do you get? You get more capital supply because we have greater division of labor, greater productivity, more capital being produced per man hour or per unit of energy expended, whatever your metric, whatever you want it to be. That would lead to a greater supply of capital, which means lower prices of capital, which means greater certainty into the future. Another way to define capital is like a buffer against uncertainty, right? If you have a a basement full of canned food and dried food, well, that's a lot of capital that buffers you against the uncertainty of food shortages, for instance. And that's what all forms of capital are providing is this buffer against risk or uncertainty. So in those conditions, you have more capital, you have more certainty. This means a, a greater willingness for capital owners to lend out their capital. And it's therefore a naturally lower rate of interest. So trying to mess with that like it, it's just self-defeat we're back to this thing where all of these interventions are just self-defeating yeah it's, right? it's the interventions themselves which actually are the defeating the defeating part yes. and it gets to what you said before about the money rate diverging from the natural rate and i mean i inadvertently in this i got into really understanding what the austrian theory of the business cycle is and it relates it is, it is a direct outgrowth of this conversation we're having and, and what you are talking about right now. Um, per, if you read uh, America's Great Inflation, Rothbard, I, I've read chapter one of America's Great Inflation. Uh, this is America's like, Great Depression. Thank you. Correction. Yep. America's Great Depression. Um, yeah, it. I feel like he has, again, ripped open the fabric of the universe so that I can peer inside and understand it. And he, he brings about a really important, or he, he explains a really important distinction. And I want to say that this is a, a, a Austrian school distinction that I have, I have not done the exhaustive research to prove or disprove this. So I'm, I'm, I'm regurgitating, mm. but I'm regurgitating something that I will say makes so much sense to me and explains things for the first time that, uh, in my naive state, I have assumed it as true. And it is that in a credit inflation, the price of all goods rise, but the prices of capital goods rise faster than consumer goods. And so if we remember talking about what profit is, profit is consumer goods minus capital goods, that's profit, it's the difference. 
So if interest rates get artificially lowered, then that costs entrepreneurs to take out more loans. Overborrow. Overborrow. And they bid up the cost of capital goods mm -hmm. relative. It's all about relative. It doesn't matter what no. the number is. It's all about the relativity of the inputs to the outputs. And so since entrepreneurs and businesses borrow much more than like consumers who are just consuming, then as capital goods get bid up, profit is squeezed. And I mean, if you look at, if you want to think like uh, on some level, I said that I haven't researched this. Like I've got, I, I can't look at the prices of all capital goods and all in all credit inflations to know this is true. But if you just look at the stock market, the stock market is when you own a stock, it's a claim to a capital good. That's all it is. Yep. You look at what happens to the prices of entire industries, housing, stock market during a credit inflation, they get bid up. So to me, that's an indication that this theory is correct. And so you have this dynamic of artificially low interest rates causing credit expansion to bid up the cost of capital goods. You know, you had a project that we thought was going to be 5% profitable. Now it's only yielding 3% because something else, some other input, uh, labor, concrete got 2% more expensive. So it's no longer profitable. Right. And so by bidding up the, the input costs, the entire rate of profit for the whole society goes down. Mm -hmm. And the interest rate goes down with it. And it takes much more money to purchase more income. And this is where all the confusion comes from, right? Especially when you consider entrepreneurs buying stocks of goods to use over a period. Um, you just cannot understand, you don't understand you can't get signal from noise, I guess, is the gist of it. You've got inflation that's just putting a lot of noise in the channel, confusing entrepreneurial action. And that confusion becomes manifest in the projects, right? The half-finished projects mm -hmm. or the booms, the busts, the distressed sells, the selling under duress, the over-leveraging, the liquidations, all of these things. <laughs> because you're screwing with the communication channel. Right. So like go, what, what would normally happen? Let's say that you are a big company. You want to do a big project. You thought it's going to be profitable. By the time you get the loan to do the project, now the prices of all the goods have changed because there's a credit inflation happening. Mm -hmm. And so now it's no longer profitable or it's become unprofitable. And so you shut the project down, you lay everybody off. That happens on a wide enough scale. Now you start to see contraction. That yep. contraction is the correction and the healing process. Yes. But then the central bank steps in and lowers the interest rate again. Oh, well, suddenly this project is profitable again. Let's do it. So now that's back on. The people get rehired because the profit spread got essentially artificially widened because the, 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 the money rate went down. Mm -hmm. So now those projects get started again. Those projects that are not profitable get started again. And then eventually input costs get bid up once again. And by the way, those input costs that are getting bid up for the marginally profitable projects, they're also getting bid up for the wildly profitable projects. Mm -hmm. Everyone, the, the overall profit level in society goes down for everybody mm -hmm. because everyone has to pay more for inputs, even the marginal, even 
the, the marginal and wildly profitable projects alike. So suddenly everyone's profit is less at the expense of trying to funnel cheap money into just the widest number of projects. And so that's 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 how the Fed creates a cycle over and over again is as the as the as the system starts to correct and as the the money rate of interest is trying to drift back to the natural rate, then an intervention happens and the money rate of interest is lowered again. And then the process starts all over again until the, the Fed hits zero and then they can't mm. do that anymore. Yeah, and I would just add that the centralization this encourages as well because the bigger outfits tend to get the money sooner, right? Before inputs are bid up. So they're at an they're in an advantageous position relative to smaller businesses. So this leads to the whole get too big to fail or die trying <laughs> ethos. On both having. sides. Yeah. On both sides. Because not only does it lead to it on the um on the the capital side or the entrepreneur side or the business mm -hmm. side, it also leads to it on the bank side because mm -hmm. this whole mechanism we're talking about, you can't do it if you're just an individual bank in a society. Right. The individual banks can't artificially change the interest rate because they'll either have no customers or go out of business. But a centralized bank that controls the credit inflation policy of the entire system, then you can do it. If there's one centralized entity setting the rate. So again, I, I just think it's dangerous to think that they're that powerful, that they control the price of something which has no price. And in fact, by trying to control it, they're distorting everything for everybody. And so this was an extremely long segue into what Pally has to say about the state of central banking after World War I. And I'm on bottom of 11 on the outline. Mm. He says that monetary policy ceased to be a purely financial or technical matter dependent on automatic processes. Instead, it became a prime objective of politics subject to arbitrariness. Thereafter, major decisions affecting the drift and measure of central banking action either emanated from political authorities or were deeply affected by the invisible pressure of public opinion. The money supply in the United States during World War I, uh, even though actually the United States didn't suspend convertibility, um, but uh, it's so funny, like I, I love going back to the title of the show, What is Money? Because um, by the time we started World War One, like we kind of weren't using gold anymore. Like the, the idea, the 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 um, the checking deposit, writing checks, that started in the late eighteen hundreds. It was just much much easier. Mm -hmm. And even though the United States didn't suspend convertibility and maintained a peg to gold, our um, the the money supply in the United States grew in 1913, it was 12.6 billion. And in 1919, the end of the war, it was 27.9 billion. And that was entirely, that growth wasn't gold at all. That was in deposits in national banks, state banks, trust companies, and then US deposits in the Federal Reserve. You have to get used to this idea of money and money substitutes to me. Mm -hmm. When I said at the beginning of, of today that there's no money anywhere in the system, I think our, we've, we had a system that had some money in it and then many money substitutes built on top, which were 
deposits on the banks of, of banks on the ledgers of banks and now we've taken away the money and now we just are working with the money substitutes yeah this reminds me of i think it's a rothschild quote that gold is money everything else is credit yeah so the, there's no money in the system it's just all no credit. there's no money in the system now i mean the government owns some gold yeah and i but i think even this process has kind of taken away the gold the, the the money value of gold as well. I don't, I don't know. It's sort of psychologically broke gold as well, or it's just proof that gold was inadequate for the level of technological advancement that we needed. You just needed money to move faster than gold can move. So you, yeah. you need a credit system built on gold for gold to work. Once you built that credit system, then you're, you've already undertaken everything that's, that was totally inevitable. This is totally inevitable. It's like, there's just, there's like a, a law that you must acknowledge, which is that humans, if humans have the opportunity to print money, they will print money. Yeah. We've said it a bunch of times. I will, you will, everyone who has that opportunity will do it. So universal human proclivity to pursue something for nothing. Mm -hmm. And could be good, could be bad. You know, the entrepreneur is doing the same thing, trying to get a little juice out of the squeeze, so to speak. But when you try to get something for nothing that harms others. That's the real problem. And it, I come back to this a lot of my own thinking that it's really just, we're dealing with this kind of arbitrary, um, I guess, chemical reality on this planet of how, how gold is. There's just economies of scale to centralize its custody and issue a paper receipt on top of it, right? It just makes it easier. It does. But in that pursuit of convenience, you've centralized so much power into one place that corruption just festers around it. So we really are just kind of a product of our, our you know, technological and geological realities, I guess, in the sense of gold. And I don't think we've, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's been zero sum. We've gotten a lot out of the last hundred years or so mm. in the the credit system for what it did i mean it, there's you can't look at how civilization has advanced and say it wasn't was or wasn't worth it we're we've done well as a species we've done a lot and i and i even think i even had to sort of check myself this week i've, I've had this conversation with myself so many times which is what wh why why would i have outrage over the system Aren't I, aren't I part of the privileged class? Aren't I protected by it? Haven't I, haven't I, um, haven't I gotten ahead because of it? Where, why do I care? Why aren't I defending the system? And then I have to, dude, I'll tell you something. You know that, um, so I'm the only one in my family working right now by choice. We have two kids. And uh, my wife has a really good career and our kids are three and one, and she wanted to spend time with them while they're this young. And she's taking some time off a year, two years. We don't know how long. And um, this kind of made my heart swell. The other day she goes, you know, we couldn't do this without Bitcoin because um, we could not afford to live on a single income. The only reason we can do what we're doing, the only reason my kids 
have their mom right now is because we have been saving obsessively in Bitcoin for as long as possible. If it weren't for that, if it weren't for, if it weren't for the way in which Bitcoin gamified the act of saving, mm. that's what it did more than the price. More than the price, Bitcoin made us like just maniacally plow every single spare penny we could into the savings pool. And so now it's several years later and my wife wants to not work for a little while. We can do it because we have the savings. And that makes me grateful for Bitcoin. And it, and it also makes me sad because we earn a good living and we, we have a really modest house and a really modest lifestyle. And um, we could barely afford this house. I mean, barely. And that's when I'm like, no, this is very personal to me at this point. I that's think we've beautiful. reached the breakdown of the system where even people on upper middle class incomes with, you know, with, super modest lifestyle there's the we just can't keep up we just couldn't keep up yeah that's really i love how you said gamified savings because it just flips you know the fiat system is sort of gamified i don't know investment maybe or you're just trying to do anything you can to outperform inflation like you have a liquidity event you, I mean, you have to get out of dollars in the, in the medium term, at least you can hold them in the short run, but they're just going to be, you know, there's so much uncertainty there. And the thing, the instrument that's meant to give you maximal certainty or insulation from market risk, which is money savings has just been like uh, hijacked or injected with all the things it's supposed to not have like counterparty risk and, and whatnot. And so people, it gamifies this whole, you know, it monetizes equities and real estate and all these other things. So then you're gamified into that system. You're just trying to flip it, flip all these assets and time the market and do all these exotic maneuvers and trades just to keep getting ahead. But with, but Bitcoin just sort of burns all that away and just like, no, it's very simple. Just save money, you know, make more, Bring in more than you spend, save money, plan for the future. No need for complex tricks or becoming a macroeconomic genius. You can just do it the old fashioned way, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a good. Sorry, one last thing. Yeah. I just want to say it's very beautiful that that also becomes reflected in your experience of your family. Oh, (laughs) man. Your nuclear family, right? Your, Your kids lives are changed and improved by virtue of their mother's presence which is funded by your saving strategy in bitcoin that is beautiful man it's it's so heavy and it's so personal and when she said that to me i i mean i was like this is the this is one of those ultimate moments in a bitcoin journey and i look at you know like i look at I'll see like her out in the garden with kids, you know, like picking vegetables. And I'm like that, this is what she wouldn't be here. She'd be at a job 
if we didn't have these savings. And by the way, like um, we're totally cash flow negative during this period of time, and that's okay. We'll have to at some point. She'll have to go back to work because we we don't have we don't have infinite savings. We don't have enough to retire right now and just be like, well, this is our lifestyle. But we can do it for a little while, and that is a real gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a real gift. But it um, it's kind of like gives me like a, a like a, a kind of like a weird sting to like I I have projections of our income projections for like every week going forward for the next year. And I'm like, wow, if if it was just on my income and and I feel like I'm I make good money too. I'm I have no complaints about my salary. Never like tried to renegotiate a thing up that I, I feel like I'm paid for what I'm worth. It's totally good. Hmm. But it's just it's not enough. It's not enough for a family of four in a big city with a house. It's just not enough. And then if you add daycare into it, I mean, you know, it's it's just expensive. I, I thought mm-hmm. I thought I was spending a lot of money when we we're just two single people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a lot more now. Yeah, man, it's really, really personal. And I, and I, I couldn't, I mean, my, my kids would not have their, my kids would be being raised by someone else. Right. If it weren't for Bitcoin. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. It's, um, a really nice personal example of how Bitcoin brings traditional values back into life too, right? Just the idea. Makes it possible. Yeah, makes it possible again, which fiat destroyed. Well, I feel like this is a good stopping point because it gets kind of like, I don't know, it gets, it gets a little more technical. And if you're looking at, I, I feel like it's good to tell the story of, again, the book is called Twilight of Gold, Myths and Realities. And there's like myths that the, the boom of the 20s was created by an influx of gold and that the depression was created by the inflexibility of the gold standard system. And that's just not true. But explaining yeah. that is technical. So I feel like that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother leg of this, which we should probably put off because this has been really productive. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Um, okay, well, I look forward to this. So next time we'll talk about the implementation of the Fed and then going into the Great Depression and the economic reality that underpinned all that. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, this has been a good one. Thank you, Lester. Yeah, thank you.